HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. It's time for lunch. Welcome to Time for Lunch. This is a place to learn about eating, cooking, enjoying, and sometimes playing with your food. Each episode, we cover a new subject. I'm Hannah Forden. And I'm Harry Rosenblum. Tune in for food, fun, and flavor. We have a special guest here for lunch today, and it's up to you to guess who they are and what the theme of today's episode is. Are you ready? Yeah. But so, Harry, okay, question. This is kind of a special episode today. So should we still do this segment? I think we should. Uh, you'll see. It'll make sense. Okay, here we go. What shape are you? I'm sort of star-shaped if you cut me in half. Are you grown or made? I'm grown. Okay, do you grow on a tree in the ground or maybe on a bush? I grow on a plant, uh, usually between three and six feet tall. I'm the seed pod of the plant. And what color are you? I'm usually green, but sometimes I can be a little bit red or purple. Hmm, and how would I eat you? You can often find me fried whole or in stews and soups. Most famously, I'm in gumbo. Oh, I love gumbo. Okay, where in the world did you originate? I am originally from Africa, and that's why I'm in today's episode. Okay, I think I've got it. One more question. Do you have sort of a slimy texture that, you know, some people might not like, but I absolutely adore? Yep, and I serve to thicken stews. Have you got it now? Your okra! Harry, you know what I've been thinking about? It's kind of funny that since we make podcasts, our listeners hear our voice almost every week but they might not actually know what we look like. Isn't that weird? It is kind of weird, but it's also sort of fun. I like the idea that each listener can imagine their own version of us as we tell them fun food stories. I love that so much. If any of you want to draw a picture of what you imagine Harry and I look like, please send them to me. I would love that so much. 
So one thing that I thought would be fun and important to talk about today is our backgrounds and how people might see us. So Harry, where are your ancestors from? Well, my family history is mostly based in Eastern Europe. So that's Russia, Ukraine, that area, with some ancestry in Germany and France. But in the more recent past, my family all lived in New York, although my father was born in the Virgin Islands, and we have a number of what I like to call quasi-relatives that we've picked up along the way. So in our family, we have influences from Caribbean culture, along with our European heritage, with a large dose of New York City. How about you, Hannah? My family also has a large dose of New York City. It is very important to me. So, you know, what's really cool is I recently got to look at a map of all the different places in the world where my ancestors came from, which I got to do thanks to a fun DNA test I took. On my mom's side, my ancestors were mostly Irish and Jewish Eastern Europeans. My father was born in Puerto Rico, which is an island in the Caribbean that is both a part of the U.S. and not quite. His ancestors are mostly Spanish, but my heritage on that side also includes indigenous Americans and African ancestry, which is super common in the Caribbean. When I look at that map of where my ancestors came from, almost every continent is included. How cool is that? That's really neat. I'm going to have to check out one of those DNA tests. Listeners, it's February, which since 1970 has been celebrated as Black History Month here in the United States. It's a time to consider, learn about, and celebrate the contributions of Black Americans to the society and culture that we know and enjoy today. And of course, that includes a huge influence on food. So, like I said, you can't see us. But neither Harry nor myself is Black. We love to learn about our folks in our community and beyond through the food they eat and the stories that their food tells. Black History Month is a great time to reflect and celebrate and ask questions about the many cultures and cuisines that our friends and neighbors of African descent can share. That means folks who are African-American, Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Latino, or with more recent African ancestry. There are so many amazing Black cultures here in the U.S. Maybe your family is a part of some of them. However, one month a year is not enough time to learn about and honor Black culture in America. So regardless of the time of year, let's remember to be curious and open about our own history and the histories of folks around us. Today, we're going to start by talking about okra as a window into some of the foods and techniques we might consider American that actually came from Africa with people who were enslaved before the Civil War. There are lots of foods that are important here in the U.S. that came from Africa, and we're going to hear about some of them today and over the next two episodes. In this episode, we're focusing on the past and to talk about the how, when, and why some foods and techniques came to this country from far across the ocean. Now, just a heads up for parents before we move on. In this episode, we are going to talk about the dark history of the enslavement of Africans in America. We're primarily focusing on the beautiful ingredients and culinary traditions that these individuals brought to this country from their homes, but it's important to acknowledge how we got where we are today. This is done thoughtfully and with sensitivity, and we wanted to give you a heads up. Why do bicycles always sleep late? I don't know, Harry. Why do bicycles always sleep late? Because they're too tired. Ah, 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 ah. Now it's time for our question of the day. 
The answer to this question is somewhere in the episode, so listen carefully. What year was slavery ended in the U.S.? Keep an ear out for the answer. I'm Adrian Miller. I'm a food writer, former attorney, politico, and certified barbecue judge who's known as the Soul Food Scholar. And my tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits. Adrian is an expert on African-American food and history. I called him to find out more about the influence of African food on American cuisine. The story that's really interesting is just how certain African uh, ingredients make their way to this side of the Atlantic. And so uh, examples would be black-eyed peas or okra or hibiscus. Uh, There were certain types of rice. There was a type of sesame seed, uh, watermelon. You know, all of those dishes come. And so um, Africans um, who were enslaved at the time took those ingredients and started melding it with other stuff that was available here. So, for instance, Native Americans had become very adept at growing corn. And so there were various corn dishes. And then there were dishes from uh, Western Europe, like one pot foods and other things. So all of these dishes come together. And so we see the ingenuity of enslaved African and later enslaved African-American cooks taking all of these ingredients and and putting them to something that's really delicious. Adrian also told us a little more about what life was like for enslaved people. Enslaved people had to get up at the crack of dawn and they often had to eat out of a trough, which is what animals eat out of. Um, They had to eat with their fingers or maybe use a a seafood shell because uh, having a fork or a knife was a potential weapon. And slaveholders didn't want enslaved people to have that chance to, you know, uh, resist what was going on. Um, And then it was just crumbled buttermilk or crumbled cornbread and buttermilk. And then for the midday meal, after they worked in the fields in the hot sun, they would come in for the midday meal and it would be the same trough with maybe filled with some vegetables, maybe a little bit of meat to fill the vegetables. And then they would go out and work again until sundown. And then for sundown, they had a very light meal, which was essentially called supper which was leftovers from that midday meal. Uh, so uh, essentially almost all of their day was for working and they had very little freedom. They had to do what the slaveholders told them to do under very difficult circumstances, no matter how they felt, no matter how the weather was, what the weather was like. Thanks, Adrian. This is powerful stuff to think about and talk about. And it really wasn't that long ago. It's hard to comprehend and talk about things like the enslavement and imagine what life was like when this country was founded and we had a whole system built on the unpaid labor of people who were not free. Parents may want to check out Adrian's books, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, and The President's Kitchen Cabinet, The Story of the African Americans Who Have Fed Our First Families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, 
HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back to Time for Lunch. I recently met Felicia Bell from Brandon, Mississippi, and I called her to ask about growing up on a farm and how her ancestors have contributed to her work today. Hi, everyone. My name is Felicia Bell. I am, at this point, a farmer, fourth-generation farmer of our DNS farm. It's co-founded with my oldest son, and also I'm an ag specialist for the National Center for Appropriate Technology in the Gulf States Regional Office. My grandfather was a, a large row cropper, um, and he did it naturally. So that's very rare, definitely in Mississippi. Long rows, a lot of food, but using up acres of land to grow vegetables. Uh, that's what he did. Um, and again, chemical free. We raise sheep and we do a heritage breed sheep called Gulf Coast Native. They're a very hardy animal, and because we get so humid here in Mississippi, that's the purpose of utilizing the sheep because they're very, very hardy animals, and they have acclimated uh, themselves to this region and the heat that we have in the summer months. We also raise various types of poultry, so we do raise chickens, we have quail, we have ducks, um, and we also raise rabbits. And, and so that's what I was raised around as a child with my grandfather. And so I learned how to raise these particular animals without utilizing chemicals and, and for shots and different injections you have to give to animals and so forth. I utilize and have learned to use, to use herbs, use herbal methodologies to heal them. It's not just the ingredients that have been passed down. It's also techniques about how to farm and how to care for the land and animals. Most of the things that we're utilizing were brought over by our enslaved ancestors, sometimes even third generation of of being, you know, in America and not being enslaved. We are acquiring our knowledge and our history uh, because most of us know for as an African person, our history was stripped from us. And so now it's taking this generation and sometimes the generation prior to me that fought out our African history. I tell people all the time, when I was being taught agriculture, it was not a sit down, let me talk to you. It was working with my grandfather, which for me as a child was like awesome. You know, it's like, oh, I get to do all this stuff with him. And, you know, it it never dawned on me until I got older, he was teaching. So he knew in his mind he was teaching me, but it wasn't, quote, unquote, a classroom setting of sit down 
young girl, and let me tell you what I need to tell you. It wasn't done in that manner, and that that's what has been. That's why I think we keep doing it because it's the way we share with our next generation that they just fall into it and be like, I love this. And so my my sons have never pulled back. I've never had issues because when I was out there working, my as a parent, the children was with me. So as even as toddlers, they were out there walking around while the, we were working. What an amazing way to learn and to carry on traditions. I think we could all use to spend some time in the fields with people like Felicia and her grandfather. It's so important to remember the influences of our ancestors on where we are today and to talk about our history. My grandfather on my dad's side is from New Orleans, so my, I have heritage there as well. And it seems that is African influence in America, but, you know, kind of get pushed back and just not spoken of. And that's a rich history. You know, I feel like as much homage is given to other cultures, which is good, we need to do the same for all cultures that have influenced the American cuisine and just, just speak on it, not pushing it down anybody's throat, but just, just bring homage to it and bring it to the light. Thanks, Felicia, for telling us your story. Let's all try to remember to give credit to where our influences come from. Check out RD&S Farm in Brandon, Mississippi for more information. And now, let's do a dance break. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution abolished slavery in 1865. Okra is related to cotton, hibiscus, and hollyhock. Okra is called gumbo in West Africa, and the well-known stew of the same name is named after okra. I know that I've said this before, but I love gumbo, and I always think of it as a New Orleans dish, but it actually has African roots. By the end of the Civil War, there were more than 4 million enslaved people of African descent living in the United States. That's so crazy. And we're still living with that legacy. It's good to remember and acknowledge and look towards the future. Hi, I'm Rachel Holbert. I am from South Louisiana, a little corner of the state called Eunice, the capital of the Cajun Prairie. And I love cooking gumbo. It's one of my favorite recipes from back home that I share with friends. Gumbo can have many different components, but it is typically a thick stew that has a roux as a base 
and it's served over rice. My favorite gumbo is an andouille sausage gumbo, which is usually a really smoky sausage, not too spicy, with chicken. Everybody knows that the second day you have to crack some eggs into that gumbo, which is really delicious. But I've also grown up with a lot of game meat. Um, so things like rabbit, um, dove, or squirrel is really delicious. And then a seafood gumbo would be something that my family would make for a special occasion. Roux is very important. And a Cajun or gumbo roux is unlike anything in French cooking. You have equal parts of oil, could be vegetable oil or lard, and flour, and you brown it for a very long time, uh, somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour of constant stirring so that it doesn't burn, uh, and you'd have to start over. We would add chicken stock or seafood stock, depending on what kind of protein is going in there. And you add your, you know, say it's andouille and chicken. And then we always have diced onion, diced bell pepper, garlic. We love okra. My family would grow okra every summer. So that has to go into the gumbo. That's the basic recipe, and the seasoning is very simple. Really, it's just salt, pepper, and cayenne. I make gumbo for Mardi Gras every year because not only is it a celebratory meal, but it's also a really good stick-to-your-ribs-when-it's-cold-outside kind of a meal. And this year, we have a drive through gumbo pickup instead of a party at our house. So, yes, there will be gumbo for Mardi Gras. It is that time in the episode where we share a bright spot from the last week. <sighs> you know, it's been feeling very February. Do you know what I mean, Harry? I do. Even though it's beautiful outside where I am and there's snow and the sun is out, it's still the days are still short and it's really cold. Yeah, I've been feeling that. I'm like, okay, I'm ready for some crocuses to come out. I'm ready maybe for a little more sun and warmer temperatures. But one thing that I have been doing is doing a lot of crafting during my spare time as a way to get cozy and do something with my hands, which always makes me happy. So I've been knitting a lot. I was really lucky as a kid that my babysitter uh, coolest teenager in the whole world, Teva, taught me how to knit when I was like six or seven. And it's something I've always really enjoyed doing. And so I have just sort of been keeping my hands busy. I made a hat. I made a, a couple headbands for my mom and for some friends and myself. And I knit some pillow covers for my couch, which are really pretty and cozy. So yeah, that's really fun. Crafting is fun. So I suggest making something with your hands, even if you don't know how to knit, you know, you can um, make friendship bracelets or just get some glue and paint and read the recycling bin and see what you can build. Hannah, that all sounds awesome. And keeping your hands busy and having something to do on these long winter nights is so important. A bright spot for me this week is I started planning on what we're going to grow in our garden this spring. And I know it's still cold and the ground is covered in snow, but seeing the groundhogs last week got me excited for spring, whenever it comes. And that means it's time to think about what to plant. 
I've got some tomato seeds, some mustard greens, and after talking about it today, I think I'm going to grow okra. At the beginning of the episode, we asked, What year was slavery ended in the U.S.? And the answer is... The 13th Amendment to the Constitution abolished slavery in 1865. Thanks for listening to Time for Lunch today. We'll be back next week with more tasty stories. This show is written, produced, edited, and hosted by Harry Rosenblum and Hannah Forden with engineering by Liam Warner. Our beloved associate producer, Emily Kunkel, is moving on to a new project. So you won't be hearing from Emily anymore, but maybe we'll get her back in the podcast later. Thank you, Emily. Music in this episode was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder, and our fun facts theme was created by our very own Liam Warner. Special thanks this week to Adrian Miller and Felicia Bell. Time for Lunch is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Time for Lunch is also a part of Kids Listen, the number one app for finding great podcasts for kids of all ages. You can learn more at kidslisten.org, and you can download the app from iTunes or the Google Play Store. Time for Lunch is powered by Simplecast. And remember to please stay in touch. I'm serious about drawing pictures of what you think Harry and I look like. There's no wrong answer. We could both be giraffes. Let us see. So send us those. Or if you have a joke you want to share or a recipe, or if you just want to tell us what you have for lunch, we absolutely love to hear from you. Um, you can reach us at timeforlunchpodcast at gmail.com. You can ask your favorite grown up to help you email us. It's super easy to record your voice uh, using the Voice Memo app on an iPhone. You can also send us a photo or video of you or your artwork. Please be sure to include your name, age, and address so we can send you something in return. Time for Lunch is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with City Council. Thanks for listening.